You don't even know. I was like, I have so much to tell her off camera before we even press that button. <laughs> but welcome back. Welcome back to Creep Time. It's good to be back. <laughs> Your hosts, Silas Dean and Stu, we're here with another case. Um, by the way, it's pitch black now where you are behind you. It's terrifying. I was going to say, <laughs> we, for those just now <laughs> being able to, to tune in and listen to us, we've been gabbing in the, in the daylight the remaining hours, and then now it's fully pitch black as we've decided to record about the actual creepy This looks time like one of those hostage, you're about hostage to tell me. videos that you'd see where, like, someone's stuck <laughs> in a room. <laughs> like, which would be a great case to cover. Oh, my God. People who were... Not to glorify that, but I mean, people who were like captured and like kept in rooms yeah. for very long periods of time. There were some very famous ones oh, in, yeah. like, pretty close to us on the East Coast too. Like famous ones. Really? Yeah, there are like um, there's one that comes to mind. Um, I think it was like a, a like a family unit of like six or seven girls that were like all under the care of this man, but they were care, but they were kept in a room for like such a large part of their life. What else am I thinking of? There was one where um, it was really sad. I remember reading about it and it was um, one of them, the oldest one escaped and she was like 14, 15, but she was extremely malnourished and she looked like a nine-year-old oh. and she had somehow like jumped out of a window but had never talked to people. So like spoke, um, like spoke like, you know, decently well, I guess, from like connections with like her family and like the people whose, you know, power she was under. But had a very difficult time, like, just talking to other people. She had never interacted with people outside of that room. Those cases are oh my God. absolutely insane. Have you ever heard of Blanche Monnier? No. This is a really horrifically um, infamous case from Paris, and it happened, I think, in the late 1800s. This is possibly one of the worst stories of confinement I've ever heard. This is not what this podcast is about, this episode. But... <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm like, it's a two. I, I think she was like very young. She must have been like in her early 20s. And she came from a very like wealthy family in Paris. And she was set to, um, she had decided she was going to marry an attorney. But I guess in comparison to her family wealth, that was considered penniless. So her, her mother was, you know, I forbid this. And Blanche was planning to just be defiant and go off and marry this man anyway. Her mother locked her in a bedroom and kept her in there. For so long that suddenly it became like a deep family secret and they boarded up the windows she screamed for like a year and until she stopped screaming and they kept her in this room in the dark and just had um staff like servants throw her scraps of food into this room Stu, they kept her in there for 25 years in the dark stop she never made a full recovery once she was found because I think one of the servants um, wrote a letter, like an anonymous letter, and was a whistleblower for this and said that there is, like, um, Madame Monnier has been kept locked in this room for, like, 25-plus years. When they found her, she was essentially nonverbal, um, hadn't seen daylight in 25 years, was maybe, like, 50 pounds, and the room was just littered with insects and scraps of rotting food. It was foul, oh and there god. is a I, there's a picture. It of her. makes you wonder. Oh my god! Like it makes you wonder <clears throat> what sort of like survival instincts kick in like that when you kind of lose like your actual like senses, like you yeah. know, light. 
n- not having to hear anybody no human other than like yourself yeah. like oh my Terrifying. god oh i mean so it, in a good way i guess you know we don't have a lot of examples to compare that to but hers is just one of the most horrific that comes to mind i think there have been books written about it it's just such a dark story um and her mother like when this all came out like when the secret was finally broke and she was arrested died of a heart attack from like the public exposure of this because it had been a secret that their family had kept for decades it's so horrific mm. it's such oh a dark story and all the neighbors had asked like what happened to blanche basically and they'd come up with some story that she had been sent away to an asylum at some point or like she had some kind of psychotic break so she was sent away to an asylum so at some point it became impolite for like you know neighbors and upper echelons to ask about what happened to blanche so people just let the story die mm-hmm. and no one ever inquired further uh, but that's it's so sad horribly sad i didn't mean to start us off on such a sour note i'm sorry <laughs> i'm like damn bitch i was gonna talk about Kristen stewart in panic room but <laughs> <I know. laughs> it, was, it was very top of mind for me to talk about blanche because i had just read something about it so i was like i have to share this with somebody <laughs> oh my god no that's so dark wow also when you said blanche my brain immediately i was like i do know that name and i was like no, uh, yeah, that's the that's golden, golden girls, girls. <laughs> Isn't there a Blanche from like a famous play that I'm sure we've all done in acting school? Tennessee mm-hmm. Williams. That sounds like there'd be a Blanche. Um, but I, so this case that I wanted to cover with you, and I'm I'm gonna have to reference my notes a lot for this because it is yeah. highly detailed and pretty well known. Because I feel like up until this point we've mostly covered cases that were, I don't know, somewhat niche or like very specific to people who listen to true crime a lot. This case is famous because mm-hmm. it was technically one of the first like online sleuth like sleuthery cases of facebook in like 2005 they people think this was actually one of the first facebook pages or groups that was ever made the case of mara murray have you heard of that name at all there's i have not heard of that name at all but it is blowing my mind also and i know that obviously you know so much about it but that facebook has become such a like wiki for true yeah. crime oh in a i way. mean it's there crazy online like sleuths and vigilantes who have actually gotten really close to solving serious crimes like um that netflix doc don't uh, f with cats that's all about vigilantes mm-hmm. um on facebook who were tracking down this guy lucas mcnada it's an insane doc you really should watch it but it's it's really tough it's it's tough to yeah, stomach through i need to but the story of Mara Murray, so let me give you just the top line, just to see if it jogs your memory a bit, because I guess it is an older story at this point. She's been missing for almost 20 years. But I'm going to give you the context of what her case is really about. So Mara Murray was a 21-year-old nursing student who was studying at the University of Mass um, Amherst, when on the evening of February 9th, 2004, she unexpectedly left campus in her car and she started to drive through Route 112, which is near New Hampshire. And no one knows why she did this. She told no one. So along this back road in the mountains, she crashes her car on a snowy night. And there are a number of people who see her and witness this and actually stop, even though it's kind of like a rural, dark road. And then she takes off from the crash site. Somehow she leaves the site. And she was never found again very very eerie 
And there are so... The longer cases like this sit, the more the theories start to, like, build upon themselves and just... Mm-hmm. When there are so few answers, the mind just races with, like, what could have happened. And I think Mara Murray is a good case of that because so much of it made zero sense, even up to the point of, like, her, you know, packing her car and driving and leaving campus, that where she actually went is just fascinating to think about. Um, I can give you... So let me give you a little bit of backstory just about who Mara Murray is, just to give you some context. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> So Mara was born on May 4th, 1982 in Hanson, Massachusetts, and she is the youngest of four children. She has one older brother and two older sisters. So her parents actually divorced when she was pretty young. Um, I think she was about six years old, but despite that, she is this exemplary kid. She's so exceptional for her age. So she attended Whitman Hanson Regional High School, where she was considered a star athlete on the track team which I think her father was actually the coach of. I think he coached her on the track team. Um, but aside from athletics, she was actually a very, very smart student. She's like the top, like in the top five in her class. So she has a lot of mm-hmm. opportunity by the time she graduates high school. And she was described as a social kid. She had a large group of friends, you know, really close with her parents or siblings, specifically very close with her father, which is interesting in this case. So later, after she graduates, she's accepted into the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, which I didn't know this, but it's really hard to get in for that. They accept, like, less than 10% of applicants. I was going to say, I knew that. (laughs) I, yeah. Well, only because I knew some people from my high school that ended up attending. Um, and, And I remember, even though I didn't know the, like, prerequisites to like get in like everything i knew that you had to really train mm-hmm. properly to like pass certain uh like tests to get in there um like physical oh tests I mean, as it would sound well she, i mean she's gonna go there and she's also yeah. she was accepted into the chemical engineering program so she has a very strict focus um not an easy program at all but it's around this time that her behavior kind of drastically shifts which i don't think is very I don't think that's specific to just Mara. I think that's a very common theme. And you can tell me what you think about that, about people who are kind mm-hmm. of exceptional and very buttoned up in high school suddenly like have their world, like they have a paradigm shift of going to college and they start to unravel just from like a different structure to their lives. I think that's what happened. Totally. And she, while she's there at West Point, she would only spend three semesters in total. And during those three semesters, she is brought in front of the disciplinary committee seven times. Like, constant trouble, which was very unlike her, very out of character. So I think we would assume that, you know, college was a difficult transition for her. And I think the straw that kind of broke Mm -hmm. the camel's back here, which is strange, is that she ends up getting caught shoplifting makeup, which is pretty petty. Like, I don't think most people would be hounded for that, but I think that is one of the final times she's brought in front of the disciplinary committee and they definitively rule that she's going to be dismissed from West Point. So this is 2002, I think, and she has to pivot and she has to transfer. So she ends up going to the University of Massachusetts Amherst, where she's going to transition into the nursing program, which is also a very competitive program. So pretty difficult, you know, and she's kind of going out on like a, a sour note from, you know, a pretty prestigious institution. So I think her family is generally really disappointed and surprised 
with her behavior and, and the outcome of this. But when she does get there, she kind of hits the ground running. You know, she's really ambitious with this really difficult program. She's got a full class schedule. She's juggling two part-time jobs, which is it's a lot for a nursing program. Uh, she's got a long distance yeah. boyfriend. She does make a new group of friends pretty quickly and she's doing track. So she has a lot on her shoulders. <laughs> I think you could assume that like at some point this kid would crack and she, eventually she's going to mm-hmm. have to do clinic hours too for this program. So she's going to have to travel to multiple different hospitals at different points. So it's not very long though, after she transitions into this program that the troubling behavior starts up again. It didn't really help the situation. It just made it worse. So by November, she is actually caught um, using stolen credit card information where she was routinely ordering these massive amounts of food. Like she would call for takeout um, exclusively with the stolen credit card and she would order like two, three pizzas, multiple sandwiches, like multiple liters of sodas, which you would assume she's ordering for a lot of people. But we have reason to believe that she was just ordering this for herself. So that's another interesting clue in that Mara was maybe losing a lot of control in her life and was starting to like teeter into binge territory where she's having some disordered eating. Um, But eventually the person whose credit card number she stole, which I didn't know this, but I found this in the research back in like 2003, 2004, on receipts, they used to print your entire credit card number. Now they just print the last four digits. Did you know that? No. So she found like a like an extra receipt hanging in like her um, dorm bathroom, and she just stole the full credit card number and just started making purchases over the phone. Oh my god! No, I had no yeah. idea. But eventually, I mean, whoever's credit card was stolen, they noticed this on their statement. They reported it to the police, who called this same spot where all these charges were coming from, the same food spot. So they followed a delivery driver to an actual delivery to Mara's dorm and caught her in the act. And she fesses up like really quickly to take her into custody. And a lot of people have fixated on this one night because the mugshot that was taken is very different from how a lot of people saw Mara. Like she's very bubbly, very smiley. And in this shot, she looks completely vacant, almost like the like the veneer of like, I don't know, this perfect life that she had been living all through, like, her high school career, being this exceptional kid, was starting to kind of deteriorate. Mm-hmm. And she looks very scary, to be honest. She she does not look like herself. Yeah. But, you know, she's in some pretty serious trouble. Like, that's still, that's credit card theft. So, this is yet another screw-up for Mara, and she's brought in front of a judge. Her father has to get involved and and whatnot to try to keep her out of trouble. And the judge goes pretty easy on her. And what they actually rule is that, of course, she has to repay everything that she spent with the stolen credit card, which isn't very much. I think it's less than $100. And the judge orders that if she can stay out of, you know, trouble for three months and be on good behavior, she'll get off. She won't have any trouble because otherwise, if she has another screw up, she's going to be hit with credit card fraud and like a felony charge of identity theft. So mm. this is really important context too. Just when we're thinking about like the theories and the motives behind why Mara might've disappeared. Um, this three month window and task that she's been giving is really given is really interesting. So let's jump into what actually leads up to the disappearance, right? Just so we, we have a bit of a timeline here. So on the evening of February 5th, 
Well, actually, maybe I should ask you, how do you, before I jump into this, how do you feel about Mara so far? Well, it's funny because I am one of four and I immediately identify, identify yeah. with being with like, I think, um, growing up in a family like that, like you do well based on like the structure identified for mm-hmm. you. And then I also think as like the youngest, you kind of watch the rest of your siblings and you kind of try not to make like the same mistakes. Mm-hmm. But then, like, when you get to something like college where all of a sudden you can yeah. be on your own, it's like, whoa, I, I can, like, I don't really know what to do with myself here. It's like, very destabilizing. I can do whatever I, it's destabilizing. Yeah. Are you 100%. the second so oldest in your family? I'm, I'm the second oldest, but, um, and I don't think he, it, listen, he's not Mara. <laughs> I don't think he would have any problem with me sharing this, but my youngest brother, like, definitely when he got to college, he was like, struggling because he was just like and he was exceptional in everything in mm-hmm. high school and he still is exceptional in everything shout out to you john <laughs> yeah, ever listen to this probably that was like, but so um sweet. <laughs> he definitely yeah but he he got to college and kind of had like a moment where he was like whoa like i have to do all this for like i Your like the world, world is my oyster yeah. kind of thing and it's like oh my god like my structure is totally out of whack and you no longer have those people like you said if you're living in a household where you're continuously looking up to siblings who have kind of set the bar you no longer have you know not only the structure of like your home life and high school and everything that comes with it but you also you no longer have the example to look to like suddenly you're leading everything that can be yeah yeah, that can be really really destabilizing i'm sure for a lot of people and i think specifically in mara's case that's probably what we were seeing and why she felt so out of control with her life. I'm sure there were a number of reasons and complexities, but I do think that's yeah. interesting. I I do find it so interesting that she shifted to nursing too. Yeah, from chemical engineering. Yeah, like what a like like wanting to take care of people. Yeah, well that yeah, seems, that's interesting too. I don't well, know. there are some theories here, because I when you say that I immediately tie it back to like her relationship with the long distance boyfriend, which would come out a lot later that was kind of mm. toxic and abusive. And I almost mm-hmm. wonder if like the need to care or like have that kind of control to care over somebody comes from this feeling of like, so much of my life is out of control. I'm destabilized in college. Mm-hmm. I don't have my older siblings to look to who we would later find out are also going through periods in their lives where they're very unstable. And in addition to that, she has this controlling boyfriend. So so much of her life just felt like out of her hands i think that it, yeah. it almost felt like she had no choice but to act out in small sort of um defiant ways to, to i don't know to ground mm-hmm. in her own rebellion but yeah the behavior suddenly shifts from something that's maybe um we would categorize as retaliation to nonsensical pretty quickly or irrational mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so get into this so on the evening of February 5th, this is just about four days before Mara actually goes missing, she's working one of her on-campus jobs, which is a security guard, I think, at an art gallery. She takes a couple of phone calls and completely breaks down, sobbing at her job. And her coworkers are trying to calm her down, they're trying to get her to relax and, and, and talk a little bit, and suddenly she just shifts and, like, goes completely vacant, doesn't cry, just looks straight forward, almost like she's catatonic. She's not responding to anybody. 
and they're trying to get her to talk and they're like Mara like what's wrong and she just keeps saying my sister my sister so we would later find out years and years later the contents of one of those calls which was with her sister her sister had just left rehab for a substance issue with drinking and I think pills the second her sister left rehab her fiance picked her up and drove her straight to a liquor store and she relapsed the same day so she had called Mara I think on her cell phone and was just confiding in her that I relapsed and I feel like lost I just came out of rehab and it's a really you know sad and destructive moment and I'm sure that would have been very triggering and sad for Mara but I'm actually a little more interested in the second call that she got which we don't have a lot of context for she received another call from a campus phone and we don't know who it was and we don't know what they said and this is something really interesting to pay attention to when we get into some of the theories about like why that call may have been more severe for Mara but essentially at, at this present time like obviously her co-workers don't know the full extent of what happened with her sister and like what's going on so they just comfort her and her supervisor is like you're just overworked you're just overworked you're tired we're going to call it a night, like, I'm going to walk you home, and brings her back to her dorm, right? And the whole time, she's still just insisting, like, my sister, my sister, just devastated over her relapse. So, she goes back to her dorm, and then fast forward two days later, this is February 7th, Saturday night, her father actually comes to campus because he's going to take her shopping so she can get a used car, because her current car is, like, a 1996, and this is, like, 2004 at this point. Uh, and it, it's just not going to be reliable for her. It has a lot of issues. And she's going to have to do clinic hours soon for the nursing program. So he's up at campus staying in a hotel. And she's going to go to a party that night with a couple of friends. He actually takes them to a liquor store um, to get booze for the party. And it's kind of interesting because he's changed his story on this a couple of times, which I think is funny. Um, she was of age. She was 21. And I, I'm assuming her friends were, too. And he, in one version of the story, says that he was in the car waiting for them. And in another version, he was like, I was in the store with them, telling them to hurry up. So it's a little, it's a little strange. But he does lend her his car for the night because she's going to take that to the party. Um, and she's just going to, he knows she's going to be drinking, but she's, uh, he's assuming she's going to be responsible. <clears throat> so later that night, Mara runs into yet another catastrophe, this girl. So she crashes her father's car on the way back from the party at 3.30 in the morning, causing $10,000 in damage. Essentially totals the car. Oh. Um, <clears throat> and this is right on the heels of everything that has just gone on with like the stolen credit card information and like her, all of her stuff with getting dismissed from West Point. So surprisingly, even though a cop shows up to the crash site, she's not given a sobriety test which I also think is really interesting. She's not given mm -hmm. a sobriety test. They just tow the car. They note that it's totaled or you know close to it. And then she's brought back to the hotel where her father is staying. Um, this is like four or something in the morning at this point. I think, you know, he's woken up and like she explains there was an accident. You know, we'll deal with it in the morning. And then we have a record that she called her boyfriend at 4.49 a.m. And that was the end of that day. So, which I've never gotten into like a wreck like that with like a parent's car, but I feel like that would really, <laughs> that would be the worst case scenario to have to go back to a sleeping parent and explain your screw up. 
Oh, totally. And you said that she and her father were really They're close. Really clo- I mean, he was he was her so coach sure... on track team in high school. I mean, he's like high expectations yeah. for her in like a few different, you know, versions of their father-daughter dynamic, I guess. Yeah. So to have to go back and explain that and have it be around drinking, which is, you're saying that she was drinking, I think she right? was drinking. Well... We're going to yeah. get into some theories on this later, and I have a couple of my own theories okay. about maybe Mara wasn't drinking that night. We'll talk about it a little bit later. But you're kind of right in that okay. sense that, like, drinking is clearly a pervasive issue in their family if she has a sister who has had to go to rehab. So it's a touchy... Yeah. It's a touchy subject. Yeah. It already sucks to, like, total your parents' car, but then to total it because you've been mm-hmm. drinking and you also have been irresponsible is... This feels like it could be the, like, nail in the right. coffin on this exactly. for the next thing that's about to come. If your mind yeah. is already, like, at the tipping point, I'm sure this could just, like, you could really become insulated in your own head about, like, I just can't stop yeah. disappointing people around me. Like, I'm just letting everybody down. Yeah. So the next day, her dad wakes up and they start to talk things through in the morning. And he's assuming, I'm assuming he's furious. And this is just com- compounded, like screw up after screw up um but he does eventually assure her once he calls his insurance that it's going to be taken care of it's going to be fine but he's going to have to talk with her like one-on-one monday um i guess because you know they have to go through like the accident report and she did crash the car even though it's under his name so she's gonna be the one to fill out paperwork for insurance and just go through all the procedures right so he drops her back off at her dorm and then he's going to drive back to connecticut and this is the last time that he sees his daughter. So now I want to talk to you about the prep she does for the actual disappearance. So very late Sunday night. So I meant, again, she cra- timeline-wise, she crashed on Saturday. Sunday night, and it's so late, it's after midnight into like Monday, I guess, technically. Um, they found later on Mara's computer, this is the 9th of February, she did a map quest search um, to check for a route for directions to Burlington, Vermont. And nobody knows why. She, it, it's just very completely plucked. Um, she also sends an email to her boyfriend after 1 a.m. Again, 2004, you email your boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> and she says, you know, I love you more, Stud. I got your messages, but honestly, I just didn't feel like talking much, you know, to anyone or any anymore. And I promise that I'll call you today, though. Love you, Mara. She then calls a condo association in New Hampshire, um, where I guess her family had vacationed a ton when she was much younger, and she just calls to get some information about rentals, but she doesn't rent anything over the phone. Um, she, the call lasts like three minutes, just for like information purposes. And then she calls a nursing student, and we don't really know why. Um, she, we just have a record that she called the nursing student and then presumably heads to bed. So then the following morning when she wakes up, we shift into Monday morning, or I guess afternoon at this point, 1.24 p.m. So Mara sends this very odd email, which is interesting, to all of her professors and her supervisors for work. And she says that she's going to be gone for a full week because there was a death in her family, even though no one in her family had died. And I think a lot of people have kind of read very deep into this, deeper than it probably is, and they're like, she was signaling or like, there's something cryptic there. I think it was just a foolproof mm. excuse of just to get people off your back and just disappear for a week, kind of, if you want to get away. 
That's yeah. that's my first thought. I don't think there's anything like inherently sinister, even though it, it is a, a not a great thing to be lying about. Yeah, I'm with you on that. But she then makes a couple of phone calls. Um, one is to an automated hotel line in Vermont, and then she leaves a voicemail to her boyfriend, and then she heads out to pack her car. So police would later find that in her bedroom, the day that she had packed, she, like, fully packed her dorm. Like, she took pictures off the walls. She put things in boxes. Like, it was it was as if she was going to move out. Um which is kind of counter to like what she actually packed in her car, which would suggest that she had plans to come back to campus. Very strange. So in her car, she takes clothing, toiletries, her textbooks, um, and her birth control. And then she heads to the ATM where she's seen on camera for one final time. And she withdraws $280 exactly, leaving just $16 left in her checking account which I think is her trying to drain her account. Because when you withdraw from an ATM, you can withdraw, I think, in increments of 20. Am I right? Back then, I think it was only 20. Yeah. Now you can, like, try to make it, like, 10s and 5s or whatever. But back then, Yeah, I don't think you could, like, that last $16, I think you probably couldn't just take that out in addition to the 280. Yeah. I think it probably was, like, she could take out as much as she possibly could. So she has $280. She then heads to a liquor store and she spends 40 bucks on booze um, where she gets a whole bottle of Kahlua. She gets a bottle of Bailey's, bottle of vodka, an entire box of Franzia red wine, which we're assuming is just for her, even though that's a good amount of alcohol because we have no evidence that she left with anybody on campus or anyone knew that she was leaving. Coincidentally, campus um, had canceled classes for this day because of a snowstorm. So everyone's off. Like, no one's taking attendance anywhere. Hmm. She then grabs the accident reports from the DMV to fill out for what she did to her dad's car. Or something like the DMV, something similar. Maybe the police station. Um, Which would also indicate that she had plans to come back, right? Or that she had plans to tie up loose ends eventually. Like, she wasn't just going to... Yeah. I was just going to say, I'm amazed by that. Because that, to me, indicates that she still cared like yeah. it, there was something that she had left to figure right. out. Like she's not just throwing caution to the wind and just running out. Yeah. It, at least it would yeah. seem unless she's like, you know, thinking completely irrationally. Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Sorry. <laughs> I had to take a sip of an adult <laughs> beverage. Let me join you. <laughs> I'm like, hold on. It's a lot. It's a lot. Because <laughs> I'm on the journey with Mara Murray right now. But I am too. I'm on the it, journey. It's very eerie. But surprisingly, this isn't even the scariest part about this. What actually happens when she makes her way to New Hampshire is terrifying. So she gets those accident reports. Um, and she packs everything into her car. Again, her bedroom is totally packed. And then between 4 to 5 p.m., they estimate, she officially leaves campus in her sedan. 
and heads up 91 North, where she would travel 140 miles, having told no one. Very, very eerie. So, I want to get into the actual disappearance next, and like what happens when she reaches New Hampshire, but what do you think up to this point? How do you feel about that behavior? All I keep thinking is that she's escaping. She's escaping right, she's like something out. that she's trying to get away from. And I don't know what it is. And I don't know if it's... Stu, the theories on this are going to throw you for a loop. Oh, I'm... I'm... Well... Case, woo, case, yeah, I'm cases excited. like this that have so yeah. little to go off of, the longer they sit, truly, like, the more minds just, like, stir up, like... This could have happened. This could have happened. But there are some, like, really compelling things here that they're going to give you chills. So yeah, I'm going to run you through the disappearance itself. And tell me what you think of this after I run through. The, it's a very short timeline, this this moment. So Mara, she, 4 or 5 p.m., she travels 140 miles up 91 North. So she eventually makes her way all the way up to the back roads of Route 112, um, which is in kind of this like mountainy area in Woodsville, New Hampshire. This is sometime around 7 p.m. where a neighbor in this area reports hearing an extremely loud bang outside of her home. And she ends up looking out the window and she spots Mara's car, which was clearly crashed and had like spun backwards, I think facing... um, the opposite direction of where she would have been driving along Route 112. Uh, she's kind of like stuck in a snowbank, too, is how it was described. So the woman ends up calling 911 by 727 and reported reported in to um, the dispatcher that she saw a young woman who was Mara, and she also claimed to see a man smoking a cigarette in the passenger seat. That's really interesting, because up until this point, I mean, everything that we've known about Mara from this day, leading up to, you know, these travels, only included her. Even when she takes out money at the ATM, it's only her. Although she did buy a mm-hmm. good amount of alcohol, which we would assume maybe wouldn't just be for her. So this is kind of an eerie kink in the mystery, this report, this first, like, witness report of the man smoking the cigarette in the passenger seat, and... Some people have said it's possible um, that what she actually saw was Mara talking on her cell phone in the car because older cell phones like this in 2004, um, they actually have like a red light that lights up when you talk on them or you're trying to call somebody. And people think that's what she saw in the passenger seat. And she thought that was like a person sitting there trying to like smoke a cigarette. But it was actually Mara's cell phone. Again, it's. I, I think this woman later concedes to that, and she was like, yeah, maybe that was what I saw. She's, like, not quite sure, because it was dark and it was at a distance. Mm. Um, but still, keep this in mind for some of the theories about this additional passenger, right? So then, at around 727, the same time that, you know, this woman was calling 911, um, there is a school bus driver, local guy who lives in this area, who is driving by, and he spots Mara at this point. This is, I think, right after 730 and says that she's out of the car and he stops because she looks like she's in distress. She is visibly shaken. The girl is shaking. She's freezing, but she doesn't seem to be hurt. She's not bleeding. She doesn't really have any injuries. She's kind of like running around and panicking. Um, so, you know, he's like, please, like, let me call 911. Like, you, you seem like you're in trouble. And she assures him that she's already called AAA and they're on their way to come tow her car. And she actually begs him not to call the police. 
which is also strange. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he, he's kind of um, off-put by this. He doesn't really understand why she wouldn't want the police to come. Like, she just crashed her car. Um, but again, she is pleading with this guy, the school bus driver, you know, insisting, I just called AAA. They're on their way. Please, there's no need to call the police. Please just let me handle it. So he accepts that. And Uh-oh. he, you know, gets back in his, his car and he drives down this human lives down the street, like maybe a mile or so. And he gets home and, you know, the more he's kind of thinking about it, the more he's, he's realizing that something's a little off about that exchange he just had with this girl. So he decides to call 911 anyway and report what just happened. So then police eventually do arrive at exactly 7.46. So let's put this in context timing-wise of when the school bus driver saw her and then when police arrive. So this would only be about... 10 maybe 15 minutes after that last exchange that police arrive Mara is gone completely vanished in the middle of these woods in the mountain so they observe the car and the second they approach the car they know that something's a little off about this like they're inspecting Mm -hmm. and the car had struck a tree on the driver's side so the windshield was pretty badly cracked both airbags had deployed and Tell me if you know about this, because I don't. Do both airbags usually deploy, even if there's someone not sitting in the passenger seat? No, because normally it's That's by what weight. I thought, right? So, I haven't read yeah. anything about that, yeah. though, so I was like, oh, maybe this just isn't a thing. But I thought for both airbags to go off, you have to have weight in both driver and passenger. Yeah, you should. Eerie. 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 So... Unless she had the booze in the passenger seat. Oh, for some maybe, reason. maybe, yeah. Well, damn girl, you are going off. You. Are- <laughs> I was like, <laughs> between that and then there's a bug that keeps getting attracted to the the light I have here, and I'm like, it's like you really are like this is Blair Witch Project right here. This is yeah, right now. I'm loving it. Keep um, going. So let's see. So they approach the car. And, you know, they're inspecting some of the immediate evidence of the accident. The car is also locked, which is interesting. Um, Inside, they would find makeup. They see CDs, driving directions that are printed out, an entire box of Franzia, which is all over the place. (laughs) Like, all over the the roof of the car, like, everywhere. I think it's split open. Either that or it was opened. Um, They do find evidence that she was drinking. She has, like, an empty beer bottle, I think, in the cup holder. And Mara's favorite childhood stuffed animal is in the car. So what Mara had taken with her, they realized, were her credit cards, her debit cards, and her cell phone. None of which have ever showed any record of being used since this night. And, okay, and here's one of the more chilling parts. No footprints. We're right back at Dylan Parker. Oh because God. they're looking around, they're like, okay, well, this, there's nowhere she could have gone. Like, it's a, she, it's a dark, snowy yeah. back road. Like, she either walked up the street or she walked into the woods. No footprints anywhere. So, the car was towed. And eventually, I think her, you know, her family is notified either that night or the following morning that there's been an accident and Mara is missing. Um, and here's what's strange, too. So... They can't immediately find her in this surrounding area. But later that night, I think three months later, a witness comes forward and says that somewhat, sometime between 8 to 
they were driving through Route 112, maybe about like four or five miles up the street. Um, like from where Mara's car had crashed. And whoever this witness was, they witnessed a young person who was walking on the side of the road wearing a dark jacket, a light hood, and jeans who was walking abnormally fast, like unusually quick, through the snow. So here's what's kind of... Of course, it was never confirmed, like fully confirmed, if this was Mara. But if we're Mm -hmm. running off this idea that it was Mara, and people think it was because if you match that witness description to what she was wearing in the ATM surveillance video, it's pretty close. Like, dark jacket, light hood, jeans. Five miles distance-wise, timing-wise, to go from, like, when she would have disappeared, which would have been, what, 7.30 or a little after, between when they spotted her at around 8 p.m. Do you know how fast you'd have to be walking through the snow to to reach that? Oh, my God. That's creepy. Also, how would you... Oh, my God. No footprints in the snow? Don't don't ask me. Like, (laughs) any of these cases where they're like, the footprints were missing, I'm like, no... What the hell is that about? How? But still, to me, I think that last potential sighting of Mara is especially chilling because there's no telling of where she thought she was going, what her plan was, if that was her, or how the hell she got so far so fast. You know? But eventually, Mara, she's not found this evening, of course, and she would never be found. Do you think she hitchhiked? Well, I do. We'll, we'll get into the theories about this, yeah. but I think it's, okay. it's almost impossible that Mara wasn't picked up in somebody's picked car. Up. Whether or yeah. not it was someone she knew or didn't know, I think is also up for debate based on the theories. We're, we're going to get into mm-hmm. some stuff that's really going to it's really gonna okay. put you through it. So her family and her boyfriend are notified and everyone starts jumping in. They start flying in, you know, for the immediate search efforts over the next couple of days. And that's when something really really chilling happens so her boyfriend while he's on a flight um this is midday on the 11th which is two days after mara was reported missing this night he turns his phone off on the plane but when he lands he turns it back on and realizes he has a voicemail from an unknown number so he plays it back and it's the sound of a woman breathing like this is his voice message a woman breathing for like two minutes and then she starts kind of whimpering and crying. And then it just cuts off. The call just drops. So he has maintained to this day that he, having known Mara personally, he 100% believes that was Mara's voice. And this was two days mm. after she went missing. Which, which to me also completely rules out the theory that she was still out there somewhere in the woods. You know? But... They tried, I mean, this is 2004, so tracing back a phone is still pretty difficult, but they are able to trace this, um, and they find out it's coming from a prepaid calling card from the Red Cross. Like, um, I think Red Cross maybe used to sell, like, SIM cards or something like that, and you could just pop them into cell phones. Oh my god. No idea. No idea if this had any connection to the case, but I can't imagine it wouldn't. I mean, otherwise, what is that? What is that? So that eerie voicemail comes, but this would probably be the last piece of evidence we have that can tie anything back to Mara or any like, you know, sighting or, you know, recording of Mara. 
the search commences, it's pretty involved. Um, they bring in cadaver dogs, they bring in trace canines, they conduct two aerial searches that we know of. One where there was snow, so immediately after she went missing, and then they wait until the snow melts so they can do an aerial search again. They never found anything. None of those credit cards, debit cards, no cell phone, no clothes, like no evidence anywhere of where Mara went. Um, and then I think by 2014, because they had conducted searches of this, the FBI got involved and they did searches, I think, year after year. By 2014, her father comes out publicly and, and says that he essentially believes that his daughter is no longer alive. Um, because at this point, it had been a decade, 10 years, and they found mm-hmm. nothing. There was potentially this huge break in the case in 2021, which is really um, kind of exciting for people who follow wow. this case, because 25 miles... From the crash site, I think in a place called Loon Mountain, um, which is a ski area, they found bone fragments that turned out to be human bone fragments. And a lot of people said, this has to be Mara. It's 25 miles from, you know, where the crash site was. And there was something, there was like some heat on this mountain anyway, because there were several employees at the ski resort on Loon Mountain who never showed up for work on the night that Mara went missing, which is strange. And the route that they take to get to this um, the ski lodge or the, or the ski resort is through Route 112. So it's very likely they would have passed her on the street at some point. So for a very long time, there was a lot of heat on them and they were chief suspects. But after testing the bone fragments, they did not belong to Mara Murray. And we still have nothing. So I'm going to dive into some theories, but I want to hear how you're feeling about that so far. I mean, let me me just pour myself a little bit more of this adult beverage. I know, I know, I know. I'm like, all I can think is that whatever it was that she was worried she was going to get caught by the police Mm -hmm. for, she was smart enough to know that that bus driver was going to call the police anyways, Mm -hmm. which kind of blows my mind. Um, Or she at least was like, I'm not taking any chances. And I feel like she got the hell out of there as fast as she could. And I feel like it was somebody driving by and she just got in well, yeah, someone's what's car. The game plan? And it was like, you're just the walking wrong... in the snow in the dark. Like at some point you yeah. gotta, you gotta get yeah. into something and like get in somebody's car or like knock yeah. on the door. Yeah. I think she went somewhere and she went to the wrong freaking mm-hmm. place or with the wrong, the wrong person. Car, the wrong and person, for sure. Yeah. Is, is what I believe. It's, the timing of it is very strange, and I really fixate on the idea of that witness coming forward saying they saw that person walking up Route 112, about five mm-hmm. miles up from the crash site. That had to be her, if that's true. If they really saw that, that had to be her. Because who else? I mean, walking yeah. through the snow on a back road in the middle of the night, it makes no sense. I just want to know what she was so... I mean, maybe it was just her anxiety and... Well, you got to put it in context. So she has that three-month window that yeah. she's in where she has to be on good behavior. Otherwise, she's, otherwise oh, she's going right, to get hit with a right. felony. So that's a huge, huge yeah. theory here. But there's actually one that's even more insane. Um, okay, so I have to dive into these because I'm, I'm so I'm like, excited. How to... <laughs> much more insane? Um, well, okay, so I think first and foremost, we can definitely rule out that Mara Murray did not simply just walk into the woods and die you know she didn't just succumb to the elements Mm -hmm. because we would have found something by now 
even if she had been, you know, picked apart by animals. The body was never found. No evidence has ever been found. And we have that very, very sinister voicemail from two days after she went missing. So I completely rule out the theory that everyone's like, it was an accidental death. She just went out and passed away somewhere. It doesn't, I don't buy it. So then we get into the first yeah. theory, which is the most obvious, that Mara was abducted. So, like you said, the most logical is that while she fled the scene trying to avoid getting into any trouble with cops, that she was smart enough to know were definitely going to come, or somebody was going to pass and report her. Um, she had moved a significant way up the road in a very short period of time, and an unknown person had probably stopped and offered her a ride, and she was physically abducted. Either she, you know... We don't know by who, but she probably just fell into the wrong, the wrong possession of somebody at the wrong time. And then mm -hmm. whatever happened to her after that, we don't know. But I do think it's interesting to note that by the time the bus driver had saw her at um, 7.30, he noted she was already freezing. She was shaking. So to think a half hour later, she's like trekking five miles up the road you would get into anybody's car. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're not thinking. Yeah. You're not oh, thinking totally. Really. So there have been a lot of people over the years who have come under suspicion, but there has never been any evidence that can prove that anyone was tied to Mara Murray's disappearance or even knew who she was. But then we get into this other theory that a lot of people die on. They die on this hill. The theory of the tandem car. So... Some theorized that Mara was actually traveling with an unknown person, right? The passenger smoking the cigarette. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So they believe that this person was following Mara in their own car behind her. Um, the reason being is uh, when police searched her dorm, right? You know, they found everything packed up. They also found a letter on top of one of the boxes that was printed out. I think it was a printed email that was addressed to her boyfriend. And it was talking about their relationship and all the trouble that they've had and how unhappy she is and alluding to this idea that he had cheated on her um so the reason people have jumped on this theory was that she bought this excessive amount of alcohol right which we would hope that wasn't wasn't just for her or just for one person but also um it's very odd that that first witness was so set in her convictions that she saw a second person in that car so much so that she reported when you're on the phone with 911 if you're a normal civilian you usually don't lie unless you're gravely mistaken I was going to say I think that the theory that that was a cell phone is I don't think that's true you never you yeah that seems so far fetched to me well I I can get behind either scenario I think especially if you're like from a, a rural like mountainy area and you're not used to seeing something so shocking like maybe uh, this woman also waited what 27 minutes to get on the phone with police so that's true that's maybe she true. was just quite flustered I have actually what's shocking about this is I, I feel like I was almost in this woman's shoes for a second because I had a New Year's Eve we used to live in college in like a like a woodsy area basically just like this place mm -hmm. snowy dark no lights and on New Year's Eve, um, two people crashed on the road outside of our place, which was like a good enough distance where we could look at them, but they couldn't see us. And we were debating on whether to call 911. It's actually strange that I'm telling this now. I'm, I'm just realizing how close this actually is to the scenario. Um, because the girl mm -hmm. who was in the car was screaming at the guy who I guess she hit, don't call 911, don't call police. 
just yelling through the dark. And I just remember sitting out there, like, waiting idle for, like, 20 minutes. We were watching this, like, should we call police anyway? Like, should we check in on them? Like, we didn't know what was going on for such a long period of time. Um, but from that distance, I don't know what I was looking at. Like, I saw two people outside mm-hmm. of the car, but I could have. there could have been people in the passenger seats. There could have been people in the back seats. I think what she did was she, uh, I think she was drunk. It was New Year's Eve, so I think she was drunk, and she, like, collided with him, and he was really, like, trying to call, like, do the right thing, call 911, call insurance, and she yeah. was like, please, <laughs> please, like, I'll, I'll pay you out of pocket. I don't know what she was, she was doing everything she could to get him to not call 911. But the tandem car theory is still interesting, because we have that 911 call, we have all this booze that she bought, we have the letter to her boyfriend indicating there were, there were problems in the relationship but we also have this strange time frame of how quickly she disappeared you know that like 10 minute window where suddenly she's completely gone from the scene and there are no footprints so if there was another car that had followed her and saw that she crashed and was with her like another person she was traveling with maybe at some point she just jumped in that car so when she crashed the car, she was in snow. It said that she had hit a snowbank or she had hit a tree and then a snowbank and the car had like basically um, hydroplane. It spun out. So it was facing the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. Okay. And some of the witnesses have noted like there were other cars that had passed at this time, other cars that stopped to see if they had to help. So maybe in like, I don't know, the the a bunch of cars that were stopping and like pulling over or like checking to see if she was okay. Maybe some people like misread, like maybe one of those cars was one that followed her, you know, this mm-hmm. unknown guy. Call me absolutely crazy. I but if she's <laughs> this, if she's this nervous about the police mm-hmm. coming and not wanting to get caught, if she were really smart and she was like, I'm going to get out of the snowbank and get on the street and start running somewhere, she would have, like, literally taken the snow and covered her tracks. tracks. Yeah. 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 I think, and I actually think that she is smart enough and capable enough to have done so. I mean, clearly she's very good at concealing some of the darker parts of her life or whatever she's trying to, you know, yeah. whatever she ends up screwing up on, whether it's, you know, getting caught for theft or, like the potential eating disorder. Like there's a lot of stuff there that Mara was clearly hiding. So mm-hmm. I don't think it's off the table to assume that Mara was smart enough to try to cover her tracks and keep herself out of trouble. Um, she may have also yeah. been drinking and driving. I mean, she had that open container and the Franzia. So, you know, like I said, it just takes one DUI and suddenly she's back to square one where like she has a felony on her yeah. record. She has a lot of incentive to like go to, go to great lengths to make sure she doesn't run into the cops that night. Right. The tandem theory, I think, is also interesting because we keep, like, the question is, like, who was the guy? And there's actually a lot of evidence to suggest that Mara was seeing somebody. So there were rumors, she was on the track team in college, and there were rumors that she was sleeping with um, her assistant track coach, rumors that she was sleeping with a lot of guys on the track team, um, and she may have had a relationship with one. Uh, So... Mm it's not off the table that she was maybe traveling to escape with a boyfriend or a love interest. I think the why is a little more interesting and that's going to take us into the next theory, which is kind of a, it builds off of this. It's a mix of a bunch of different theories, which is the theory that Mara needed to disappear. She had to get away. 
So why? So let me take you back to the night of February 5th, I believe. This is, um, I think this is the night when she's working her campus security job, right? So on this night on campus at UMass, uh, a student named Patrice Vassi was hit by a car on campus and goes into a coma. And they never found out who did this to Patrice. So we know this happened at around 12, maybe like one in the morning, which is right around the time that Mara got two phone calls, one from her sister and one from a campus phone. Interesting part about that story. Remember, Mara was walked home that night to her dorm. She did not have her car with her to this on-campus job. So Mm -hmm. she's sobbing uncontrollably, which of course we can attribute to like her sister relapsing. But it's also possible she got even darker news on that campus call um, that came into her phone. Something that we don't know the contents of, which is really strange. So Mm. she didn't have her car with her on that night. So it's theorized that she had actually lent her car to someone and they struck this student in her car, assuming that they had killed him because it was a hit and run. So they hit the student and they didn't know that he was in a coma. They just thought they killed this kid and then told Mara in secret over the phone and explained that they did this in her car, which is registered to her dad, Fred. I mean, talk about like a fragile mind that's on the brink of just cracking. This could really, this could really be like the actual last straw. And she has to keep this inside. She can't tell anybody because this person's confiding in her. So, you know, what's interesting about that story is that this happened on the 5th, and then two days later, Mara crashes her dad, the car, I think. Um, I believe that her dad had lent her. I think it was the same car. So it's strange to me that she wasn't given a sobriety test that night. And it almost makes me think that maybe she tried to crash that car intentionally to cover up the damage. So that it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't be linked back to this hit and run. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And what's also strange is that on the night of the party, so this is Saturday night, the night that she crashes the car, she apparently told her friends at the party something that they have never told police. And they have kept this private, and she confided in them, and they've only told this information to the family. And they did, they did so, like, years later. But I think that's strange, too, that Mara had this secret that she told her friends, and eventually after she went missing and all of this went down, they told the family... But we've never we've never come to know what that was. So if we put this in context, Mara had these rumors going around that she was seeing this guy. Maybe she lent out the car to this guy, hit somebody. It's just and she's still in this window at this point where she has to be on good behavior for three months. So then suddenly she has this massive secret. She's now conspiring to cover up a hit and run. She tries to intentionally damage a car to try to erase some of the evidence, but also knows that eventually this is going to come back to bite her. Like, police are going to crack down on this case, and they're going to start questioning people. So she's got to get Mm -hmm. out of town. As does this guy who probably hit this kid. So this plays into the tandem car theory that they both devised a plan. They were going to pack everything up, and they were just going to get physically away from campus for a week so that if police came knocking, they were nowhere, right? at least for that week until they could figure something out. So I guess maybe the theory is that 
they take both their cars off campus, um, which also, like I said, campus classes were closed this day. They were canceled because of a snowstorm. So no one would even know if anyone was missing from class. Like there's no attendance record to go back to see like, well, maybe Mara and this guy were both missing from class and we can tie it to that. Everybody was out of class. Mm-hmm. So they drive all the way up to this place that Mara was scoping out, I guess, somewhere in New Hampshire or Vermont, wherever they were going. She crashes her car because she's drunk and she's stressed. And then she ends up getting in his car to drive away from the scene. And then at some point he gets terrified because she is the only person who he knows, knows the secret that he potentially killed this kid in a hit and run. And he does something drastic and takes her out, does whatever with the body and then just heads right back to campus. Mm -hmm. And no one even knows that he left. No one knows. To me, that's a really viable theory. It's very, it's I very convoluted. I was going to say, I'm leaning towards it's, this one. Yeah. It's very specific, highly it's detailed. It's convoluted. It's highly detailed, very specific, convoluted, and yet it works. It completely works. It explains so much of the absence of footprints, the immediate um, departure from the crime scene, the motive of why yeah. she would want to get away so quickly. And I know there were other motives for why Mara would have wanted to, you know, ditch campus and, like, avoid the police for, you know, psychological reasons, but... To me, this is a really compelling one and also explains the night of February 5th when she got that phone call and she was sobbing. Mm-hmm. So I was just going to say the voicemail, the voicemail, the voicemail is dark. Dark. That's, that's really. Oh, oh, God. Poor thing. She was she was. Putting all of her energy into all of the wrong things and yet she knew that like i think she was smart enough to know that had she just said her truth and like said she needed Mm -hmm. help she probably would have like been fine and but she just couldn't see the light she just went so far down in the the mix of just you know all of the stress and like these compounded um it's just only 21 at this time i mean just compounded stress on top of stress it's just you can't think clearly and then at a certain point especially in, in learning information about a hit and run you do become culpable. You become like an asset to that crime if you're not fessing up. Yeah. You know? And then at a certain point, she's already like conspiring to cover it up because she's making plans and like intentionally trying to sabotage evidence. Like she was digging a hole so deep for herself that there was no way out. So then, yeah, I'm sure at a certain point, if she cracks, maybe like they're all the way up in New Hampshire and she's like, I have to tell, she comes to it and she's like, I have to tell somebody, I have to go to police. We have to confess to this he whoever he is goes wild and just kills her yeah you know she's not going to mess up his life whatever plans he had because of this incident i'm I'm trying to put myself in the mindset of what he was thinking and what he did to her and where she where she actually went it's so strange there is another theory that's kind of similar I suppose, in that, you know, Mara did need to disappear, but there was no one else involved. I mean, we could just put it as, you know, Mara was stressed and she wanted to get away from campus, get away from all of her problems, and in the process uh, was going to get a DUI. She was drinking and driving, crashed her car, and she knew if cops came, that's it. She's got a felony. So in her heightened state of stress, she just starts trekking up the road and then eventually gets abducted. Um, Or... She had intentions to disappear regardless. And this dips into a strange theory about her father, Fred, which is... I, I was wondering where the father theory yeah, was coming. Yeah, you, you know it's in there somewhere. But 
I think because they had such a close relationship and because people have noted the oddity of why he changed his story a couple of times on the night that his car was crashed, I think people have turned their eyes to him and the family resents this so much because they hate to think that he had anything mm. to do with Mara going missing. But the father theory comes into play for a couple of different reasons. So, you know, shortly after or shortly before, sorry, that she vanished, he um, took her to the liquor store. The story changed a couple of times. And then I think just a day before she disappeared, he took out $4,000 from like several different, or someone did from his ATM or under his ATM account, $4,000 over um, from several different ATMs. And no one really knew why. Investigators were like, why did that happen? Why did you take out that money? And he claimed he took it out because he was going to use it for like a down payment or something. Um, for whatever used car he was going to help her, help her buy. But even after the fact that Mara went missing, that money was never returned to his account, even though they found out later that he was really strapped for money. Like, his house was getting foreclosed on in Connecticut. He hadn't paid taxes. Like, he, he really needed to have that $4,000 back in his account. But the theory is that Mara got into some trouble. You know, whether it was from the DUI theory or or you know she was just getting into trouble you know situation after situation or he knew about the hit and run and knew she had to get out of town that he strategized with her to get her up to canada cross the border gave her enough money to do so just so she could lay low for a while and get out of um i just get out of the country but then it ends up becoming an issue because of the car crash and suddenly it becomes a missing person case right like, in theory, she could have just mm-hmm. left campus, gone to Canada, and just laid low for a while if she was in trouble. But because of the car crash, and she ditches the scene, and whatever happens, or she did get away, and that was part of the plan, the story becomes bigger. And suddenly they're all culpable of trying to cover something up. It's a bit of a far-fetched theory, but I do think the ATM withdrawals are unusual, and I do think his changing story, his story in flux, is a little unusual. But ultimately, of course, we've never found Mara, but there have been a lot of people who have reported sightings of her in Canada to this day. I was going to say, like, I'm actually very curious about the idea that she's alive. Mm -hmm. There are quite a few people who do believe she's alive. Because there's actually, like, no doubt in my mind that this girl was very capable and smart of... Yeah, she had enough tact to plan this. Getting out. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, and the dad theory, I don't really side with because I think um, he probably, in a last-ditch effort to help his daughter, was trying to pull out those funds and get her back on the right track. That's what I like Mm -hmm. to believe. Um, But, yeah, I am... I have chills. (laughs) I am, like, fully... I'm a little bit leaning towards the fact that I kind of believe in my soul that she's, like, alive somewhere. Really? To me, I I think I've kind of conclusively settled on the idea that I do think Mara Murray was killed. um, And I'm solely attributing that to the voicemail. That, like, clearly she she seemed to be injured or, like, something. She was harmed in some way. In distress, yeah. Yeah, I mean, even if you're in distress, I mean, you'd be able to, like, say something on a voicemail if you're calling for help. I think maybe she, she was, like, close to death. Just breathing into a phone, however she acquired that phone, 
The question is, is who was it? Was it somebody who picked her up? I mean, that's a very, if it was somebody who just found her on the side of the road, like a stranger, what an opportunistic killer. I mean, that's what, yeah, how you, there's no way you could have anticipated you were going to find some young girl on a back road in the mountains of New Hampshire. See, that's where I get kind of like tripped up is that I just think the timing, I mean, maybe like, it's possible. Maybe like bad attracts bad. Like you're in a, a bad situation and just the stars align to put you in an even more effed up situation. Mm-hmm. But like, there's a part of me that almost feels like whoever came and picked her up had mercy on her. And she was like, can you drive me to Canada? Can you drive me to where oh, I Oh, so you think go? she like, was, she was trying to get out of, out of here. Out of the country. You do think that? I don't know. I Like, I don't rule it out as, like, not being possible. Mm-hmm. I haven't decided if I believe that. I, I mean, I guess I do think that she was definitely trying to clearly get out of state, but um, I think maybe just spend, like, a week laying low for whatever reason, whether she had to get away because of psychological yeah. issues and stress or or she did do something wrong or she knew something that happened that was really wrong with this, wrong with this hit and run, which, again, still has not been solved. And, you know, yeah. this student made a full recovery. Um, Patree, he, I, I believe it's a, it's a man, but he fully recovered from the coma, but he has no recollection of who hit him. What a shame. <laughs> it solved a lot of things, but I, I think it would have been a very opportunistic moment for a killer to just have the right time, right place, right person, and be like, come in my car, you know? And then yeah. suddenly you're abducted. The tandem driver theory, I think because it's so fleshed out, makes a lot of sense. But that's because people have fleshed, mm-hmm. they've done all of, like, the digging they could to build this theory into something that's true. Yeah. Which it could be. It could be. This is one of those cases where it's, like, I don't know. In my gut, I normally, when we talk about cases, I'm like, okay, I, I feel like it would lean towards mm-hmm. this. I am kind of thrown for a loop with this one. Very few answers. It's really strange. Yeah. It's also just a very scary thought to me, the idea of I'm, I put myself in those shoes of, you know, being stranded in, like, the mountains of New Hampshire in the snow and just, like, running through the dark. Yeah. Not knowing where you're going, what your next move is, what your plan is. You have no cell service. I mean, it's terrifying. Yeah. What could have happened to her? But damn, I mean, she sounded like a I know, but she sounded like a survivor. She was, no, for sure. Even though she was, like, she was on the wrong path, it seemed like she was, she had never lost her, like, determination to try to get out Mm -hmm. of it. She kept making bad frickin' decisions, but she was determined to, like, (laughs) survive it somehow. I think it's really a case of, like, no one really helped Mara. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think Mara was really a person who was in great distress and going through a lot of um mental anguish and no one reached out or even maybe knew to reach out that see if she needed help because clearly she had a lot of destructive behaviors and patterns that were just getting her into bad situation after bad situation and you know later on we would find out from the binge theory that she was you know covering up quite a lot i just feel like she probably wasn't thinking clearly for the majority of this so i don't know how culpable we can hold her to some of the things that went wrong but 
I, I also, I, I hear what you're saying that like, clearly she was making decisions that were tactful enough to like get her out or try to get out of some of these situations, like encountering the police or like yeah. even covering up evidence if that's what she was doing. I think it was also an issue that people, a lot of people talk about with like the issue of substance in this and just her alcoholism. Yeah. And that played into like a lot of the irrational decision-making and, you know, trouble that she got herself into. But her dad even noted that she's a, she has a lot of um, survival knowledge, I guess. And like, she's pretty well equipped to like handle some of these situations on her own. Something that was also really strange. And I want to tell you this and hear what you think about this. So when they found her car, there was a rag that was tucked into the exhaust pipe of her car. A little strange. Well. Which a lot of people have brought up as an issue. And some people have said that, like, that's something her dad used to tell her because it helps the car, which is completely counterintuitive because that actually ruins a car. Yeah. So why would she do that? Unless she was trying to... That adds a whole... Uh, it's a small detail, but it adds a whole say, other strange element to this case. Intentionally trying to ruin I her car. I just had a really weird... Yeah. Oh, man. I told you. I told I you this case really was going to be something. Thought. I had a really dark thought, but I was like, no, 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 no. no. That's what too crazy. But, like, for me, someone in destitution, kind of like this, although I, I don't know, this is where I keep going back and forth, because I feel like she is a survivor, but at the same time, is that what you're thinking? Yeah, would, like, throw in the towel, and I think... When they they were like, well, she's going up to, so the chief officer who worked on this said that he believed that her intention was to drive up to wherever she was going in New Hampshire, and she was going to take her life with a combination of pills. yeah. And alcohol, all of this alcohol she bought. And she was going to binge on all of it and just end all of it. I partially reject that theory solely because she took a lot of things with her, which would make me think that she had intentions to carry on. Like the accident report she was Mm. sent to fill out, like her textbooks, Mm -hmm. her birth control. Also, the birth control to me, I know people take birth control for quite a few reasons. I mean, that are not related to preventing pregnancy, but... Not something we can fully rule out as to, you know, maybe evidence that Mara was seeing somebody else. Mm-hmm. Truly. The rag in the, the tailpipe is strange, though. That's... Totally strange. But where I was going to go with it is that a lot of times people that take their own lives by um, association with, like, having the exhaust mm-hmm. run, there are some people that, like, decide last minute shit, I don't want to take my own life or something, turn the car off, shove the rag in the exhaust. Mm -hmm. I know that's a wild place to go, but that could have been... It could... Does it... I don't know if it causes any, like, backup or buildup of CO2 if you put a rag in the exhaust. I just know it it ruins your car. But I don't... But I do think that, like, there is quite a bit of substantial evidence that Mara had intention... Destructive intentions. You know, like, maybe she was going up yeah. there to binge drink or she was going up there to take pills. <laughs> I love how you were like, bitch. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, cause I catch myself. I'm trying to keep myself like very honest with these. I know. I do believe what you're talking about. I know. Though. Like, 
Or you could think, I mean, here's what I would think, to be honest. Like, when I think rag in a tailpipe, I am so gay and know so little about cars that I'm like, the car's going to explode. <laughs> I'm not kidding. The car's going to explode. <laughs> so in my mind, I'm like, could it have been that Mara was trying to blow the car up? You know what's so crazy about all of this is, like, she kind of, and I I don't mean to giggle, like, and make light of it, Mm -hmm. but it's, like, she had so many different, like, she truly set up so many different scenarios as to how it could go, that if her intention was to create one of, like, the most incredibly hard-to-solve, unsolved mysteries of all time, Dan should do a good job. Because there it, there are so many, like, options that kind of would make yeah. sense. It's just, I mean, it's just so illogical. It's, uh, in some ways, it's almost more illogical compared to, like, something crazy like the Dylan Parker case. Where, like, we actually have, like, a body and, like, we have things we can look back to mm-hmm. and we have patterns. Like, this is such an up-in-the-air situation. And the only thing that I can tether it to in terms of, like was she abducted did something sinister happen is that eerie voicemail that the boyfriend got mm-hmm. that one mm-hmm. haunts me because i actually didn't remember that detail when i was reading about this case i thought the whole like the buck just stopped with like mara left the crime scene or the crash site rather and just disappeared into the night and was never seen again the voicemail is truly haunting i i can imagine he lis- listens to that or like thinks about that quite a bit just want because like I'm not sure. even knowing for sure if it's her assuming it's her so how old would she be now if she was alive oh God. let me think she was 21 in 2004 so what does that make her like 36 37 now how dare you make me do math live on a podcast death to all of them death becomes her will tell me well she's been missing for 18 years so yeah she would be like what 39 oh my god it is Mm. it is incredibly incredibly puzzling and very very sinister to me but i yeah i don't know i don't know what to make of it i just find it to be a very compelling unsolved case that hopefully one day we'll have some kind of closure to it. And that, I mean, her mother has died. She's since passed. So she's never gotten closure Mm -hmm. on what really happened to one of her daughters. Um, But I believe the rest of her family, they're still pretty active in like investigating this case and looking for answers on like what they just want to know what happened on that night. Because it just doesn't add up. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my I God. think there were, I mean, I really want, I thought about like extending this and talking about like all of the different suspects, but it didn't make much sense to me because I, there's never been any evidence to like really tie this back to them. I think people are just grasping at straws here because they're like, come on, this doesn't make any sense. Like, I yeah. think there, were, there was a couple in this area who people really fixated on for a while because very shortly after Mara Murray's death, I think they were acting very strange. Like people who knew them, friends and family in town were saying that they were acting very suspicious and like they were, I don't know, leaving like get togethers at odd times. And they were always talking and whispering about things that were going on. And I think what was strange was that both of them had like 
I don't know what it was, conflicting alibis or something, something that like really tied them where they're like, oh, they definitely know something or like they saw something or are involved. But again, like they've been investigated too. Like there's nothing to tie it back to them. There is another, another sinister theory that the police were actually involved in this. And that's interesting. I, City or county. <laughs> girl, we're in the mountains of New Hampshire. You know it's county. <laughs> County's out there covering, they're say, covering shit up. This is county police shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason being is because police, again, they logged that they arrived at the car at exactly 7.46 p.m. But there was another witness who passed this site and said at exactly 7.37 p.m., police were already there and were parked head on with Mara's car. And I think Mara was still there, which is a very strange conflicting report that police saw Mara, even though they said they didn't. What was also eerie was that they immediately reported that Mara was missing, even though the car was registered to Fred, Fred senior, the dad. Mm -hmm. So people have, They've called that into question. They're like, well, how did they immediately know that Mara was driving the car? Which, I mean, to me, I'm like, I can, anyone can figure that out through context clues. I mean, you look in the car, yeah, like, yeah. she's registered as, like, an insured driver. There's makeup in the car. There's a animal. Like, there's, there's, like, history yeah. of her damaging. Ex exactly. You know. Like, I don't think Fred's in there with birth yeah. control. But that's yeah. me as a sleuth. <laughs> but I do think that that witness testimony is a little strange. That they, they really stick to that idea that, like, they passed at 737 a full 10 minutes before the police logged that they were there and said that they already saw police talking to Mara. Yeah. This is such a strange case because I think it's unlike mostly you cover where the victim like sort of left the breadcrumbs for us what feels like intentionally. Whereas like in mm. most other unsolved cases, it's like you're trying to find like the... Um, like the victim didn't right, leave much for you right. to go off of. Whereas like, it feels like she gave us everything except like, there's just one thing that we're not seeing. That's how I feel mm, no, right now. People have called that into question too. They're like, it seems like Mara kind of set up all of these, like, um, these signals basically, like even down, like I said, even yeah. before, like people saying that, like they're reading into like, why did she specifically say someone died in her family? Why was that the excuse? Or like, yeah taking her textbooks with her and things that would indicate she's coming back, even though she packed up her entire room and took pictures off the walls. She leaves this cryptic note on top of her, the box. Why would she leave a note for who on top of the boxes? No one's coming to claim that. It's like, she just couldn't keep, she couldn't make up her mind. Like she couldn't make up if she wanted to continue on and yeah. come back. Like, and like just escape for a little bit. And then like, get it together and come back and try to have a normal life again or if she was just like F it I'm just gonna mm -hmm. go and escape and then maybe realize like what the hell am I doing and crashed and just oh, it's crazy. A lot that could have happened. We really don't know because we're not in Mara's mind we don't know like exactly what she was thinking how much clarity she had but that is it that is the unsolved case of Mara Murray. It has been almost 20 years and we still don't have an answer. Oh my God. And two hags like us I'm are sitting so out here <laughs> trying to figure out, build out this plot. <laughs> I'm so curious what your audience thinks because I feel like they are. I know. 
so in tuned. I'm so they curious. Come up, they come up with some think. wild theories. Creepers who listen to this, um, they pitch some really great stuff, honestly. I, I feel like I covered something recently where, like, someone gave me a completely different perspective that I hadn't thought about. Um, I think on the Patrice Endress case, actually, the last one we did, episode three, uh, people had a lot to say just about, because again, this is another one that has like a lot of like time stamped evidence. We're like, we know exactly what happened based on call records, like what was leading up like play by play. And then all of a sudden, nothing like mm-hmm. everything, everything is a possibility all of a sudden, which again, we should revisit that case again. We should actually go to coming Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> If you, <laughs> we can be we can be camp. We can take a trip. <laughs> we can pass off as can. <laughs> we should do um, we should do we for sure should do a podcast recording in one of these locations. We should actually go to the location like you suggested, where we're talking about the case. 100%. I just think that would that would uncover. Could you um, actually? I'm too scared. I'm too chicken shit for that. <laughs> Well, you know I'm not, so I'll well, drag people, your I mean, this case, this case about Mara Murray is so famous. People actually go to the crash site, and they take videos there, and they talk about it to this day. They, like, do straight-to-camera, like, like doc conversations and talking heads at the actual site where the car was found. There's actually a video I watched on YouTube where someone drives. This is really going to, this is really going to throw you. Someone does the exact drive. They have a dash cam that Mara Murray did the night she disappeared. They start. I was they start say. from UMass and go all the way to the crash site. It's like a it's like a three hour video. All at the, at the exact same time, they depart at like four or five p.m. So like you go through the track that she actually drove on that night. Sinister as hell. I've now completed an entire bottle of wine. <laughs> In, oh, I can't say that. <laughs> I was going to say, we're, we're doing this entire episode and we're like, this woman's neuroses, like, she's dripping to drink. <laughs> and you and I are just, like, pounding it's, it's wine. A, it's like, a, I know. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> at least it's not, like, Sunset Blush Francia. True, or true. Yeah. I feel like we've kept it mostly kosher. Um but yeah yeah that is it how do you feel about that do you feel like that's one of the more sinister you've heard or do you feel like that's just i think it's just it's not that it feels as dark and gruesome as a dylan parker case but it does feel somehow more mysterious oh it's way more mysterious to me it's um like i said it's just i think it's probably more interesting to people because it is feels like it's unsolved because the victim mm-hmm. left it unsolved and not like the perpetrators. Like, like we're not as interested in who they are. I'm more interested in like who the victim was. Cause I feel like she kind of set up her own demise in some ways. Yeah. I think you're right. I think she yeah. really did. It's tee this up in, in some very strange kind of convoluted way that you're just trying to follow the pattern of what she was thinking and like what, rational thought led to the next irrational thought but at some point some of this all goes wrong and there most definitely was someone else's hand in this so someone either she knew or someone who found her had a very very dark role in this story totally and with that we conclude the case of Mara Murray I think that's it 
that's all that's as far as we can get <laughs> that's as far as we get i'm like how long did we record this one we could keep this is like a I know, I know. I keep trying to keep them buttoned up for you guys, but there's just so much to talk about, baby. There's so much content, we got baby. Lots to discuss. But with that, I guess we will conclude this episode of Creep Time. We will catch you on another one. See you later. Bye.